Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. Everyone was expecting 2016 to be a dynasty election a year or so ago, the Bush dynasty versus the Clinton dynasty. But the last week or so, uh, another sort of dynasty came into view. Uh, one of my colleagues uh, came up to me and said, have you heard the news that the Duck dynasty is fractured because uh, the patriarch of the family has endorsed Ted Cruz and Willie Robertson in the family has endorsed uh, Donald Trump. And uh, I just said, well, who knows how this will resolve it. I suppose we have to wait for next week's episode. And it certainly seems as though uh, this year's election, uh, really on both sides, has turned into kind of a, a reality television show of its own. Well, there's a new book out, brand new book, that looks at this, particularly on the Republican side, but I think it applies to broader things going on within the culture and even uh, within the church. It's called Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections and How It Can Reclaim Its Conservative Roots by Matt K. Lewis. You may be familiar with Matt Lewis from his work in the Daily Telegraph, from London and his uh, writings for The Week magazine, and also uh, his appearances on uh, television, Morning Joe and other programs to talk about uh, political matters. Matt, thanks for taking time to be with me today. Hey, Dr. Moore, great to be here. Now, what was the the kind of um, crisis that prompted you to say, it's time to write about the way that uh, that your party, the Republican Party, had sort of lost its way? Well, um, you know, the timing of the book could not have been better. Of course, uh, Sarah Palin endorsing Donald Trump the week the book comes out, uh, the book called Too Dumb to Fail. Um, so the timing was perfect. But of course, you start writing a book a long time before it's published. And this actually grew out of columns that I started writing about five years ago. Um, when I started seeing Sarah Palin, whom I once really liked, sort of being radicalized and there were candidates like Christine O'Donnell and Sharon Angle that I saw. Christine start- O'Donnell, for those who don't know, is the, the candidate in Delaware who proclaimed that she was not a witch. In the <laughs> right. And they basically there was a common thread that a lot of these candidates had starting about five years ago. They were playing the victim card and they were playing identity politics. And both of these things rubbed me the wrong way and struck me as unconservative. So the victim card bothers me because, you know, conservatives, we're supposed to be rugged individualists. We're going to find a way to succeed. We're not going to complain and whine and blame other people. Um, And then the identity politics thing bothered me. I've always been very comfortable with a politics that's about left versus right 
or a politics that's about right versus wrong. But this was us versus them. Hmm. It was those people in the establishment are stopping us from being successful. And that was really this populist strain that I was very uncomfortable with. That got me started down this, down this trail. And of course, it ends up culminating uh, with the book coming out at really an amazing time, uh, for me at least. Uh, you know, you really could not have planned it. I, I saw the, you know, I saw the I saw the trends that led to Donald Trump, but I did not imagine that he would be the vessel mm-hmm. of this or that he would end up being the front runner in this presidential race. Now, you you talk about in the book an echo chamber that takes place. What does that look like for, for real people, people who are just uh, making their decisions about voting and living their lives? How would one know if one is in a media echo chamber? Well, there's so many factors that I document in this book that lead to the dumbing down of politics. Um, One of them, one of the many factors is this echo chamber issue. And look, I'm old enough to remember the bad old days when there was a media monopoly, when liberals essentially controlled three TV channels and two major newspapers. And, you know, there was a filter that prevented conservative alternative dissenting viewpoints from being heard. The problem we have today is kind of the opposite. It's we have this 24-7 cable news world where you have to have content. Um, We have the blogosphere and the Twitter sphere. And frankly, all of these things have benefited me personally. Um, I could not have even written a book uh, in the old days if if, if I had to rely on, you know, there would have been gatekeepers who, who kept me. Uh, you know, out. I, I wouldn't have been able to show up at the Washington Post and say, hey, guys, I want to be the next George Will. Yeah. Uh, they would have laughed at me. But one of the things that's happened, uh, one of maybe the unintended consequences of the rise of alternative media is this echo chamber. And basically, it works like this. It's possible for somebody to live their whole life watching only Fox News, reading only Red State, and listening only to Rush Limbaugh and Mark Levin. And if you do that, you're going to have a lot of your opinions reinforced. You're not going to be forced to confront dissenting opinions or alternative opinions. And you're probably going to be out of touch, frankly, with a lot of what's happening. You, In fact, in 2012, you might have woken up the morning after the election and been literally stunned that Mitt Romney (laughs) was not the president because you would have heard – uh, Dick Morris on the O'Reilly factor, guaranteeing that Mitt Romney was going to win in the landslide. Yeah, well, the, yeah, that's I remember in 2008, and the same thing happened in 2012 uh, when I said to some evangelical Christians, "I think Barack Obama is going to to win this election," and they responded as though I had betrayed them. And <laughs> right. uh, and I said, "I'm not saying I want that to happen. I'm saying I think that's going to happen, and it certainly seems clear to me that that's where uh, where the electorate is going." But it was almost as though they wanted a comforting word that would yep. reinforce the world that they that they know. And I suppose we all want that at some level. No, I completely agree. And I mean, it's funny. I wear different hats, but as a political analyst, you know, I, I had a similar situation. I went to a meeting in 2012 of conservative leaders, and I was the only person who thought that Obama would be reelected. Hmm. And it's so weird, you know. Look, if I say I think the Carolina Panthers are going to win the Super Bowl. It doesn't mean I'm rooting for them. Right. It means right. that I'm a political analyst who just, or a sports analyst in that case, who is is, is you know basically making a a non 
endorsement opinion um, based just solely on what I believe will happen. But yeah, it's really hard. People tend to conflate analysis with uh, you know what what you wish would be the case. Well, when you when you think about these issues of, of dumbing down, how does that apply specifically to evangelical Christians? I mean, one of the things that I've been just driven almost to the point of insanity by in, in recent weeks are the media caricatures of evangelicals, which are driven, uh, frankly, by some evangelical leaders who, who I, I think almost read the caricature of evangelicals in the New York Times and say, yeah, let's be that. <laughs> and yeah. then and then and then do so. How do these trends that you're looking at politically influence what's going on within within the church? Well, I think the good news is I actually feel like it's getting better. That um, that there there are a lot of of very smart um, and also devout evangelicals now. That mm-hmm. it used to be that um, you were either an intellectual or you were an evangelical, right? And it was almost almost mutually exclusive. Now I think there's kind of um, a stark contrast. And Eric Erickson wrote a pretty interesting piece, really observing how um, there's sort of two camps, and you can almost the dichotomy it almost splits into like which ev- if you're an evangelical and you are supporting Ted Cruz versus Marco Rubio. Yeah. And I don't want to get too political here, but it is interesting the breakdown. It seems like the sort of um the the sort of throwback to a bygone era of the sort of the Jerry Falwell culture warrior evangelicals are disproportionately supporting Cruz. And then you have the sort of the more modern, I don't know, Eric Metaxas, Tim Keller, Russell Moore, <laughs> Matt Lewis uh evangelicals who are just as devout, believe in miracles, virgin birth, uh, resurrection. I mean, believe in every, you know, this isn't like a a case of being soft theologically, Mm -hmm. um, but tend to be more in the Rubio camp. I thought that was an interesting piece Eric wrote about that. Well, what do you think has happened in terms of evangelicals living and working within the political sphere? Because I, I think that's something that applies not only to evangelical leaders, but really it applies to every uh, evangelical uh, carpenter or homeschooling mom. Everybody has a Facebook account. Uh, everyone is engaging uh, politically at some level or other. What are some of the things you see happening within evangelicalism when it comes to to doing that and to being a voice that's both faithful and and not dumb? <laughs> at the national level. Yeah, I'm pretty optimistic. I think things are are getting better, and I think it comes down to the whole being in this world but not of this world, of uh, the city of God and the city of man, and putting things in proper perspective. So in the book, I certainly argue that it's important that people of faith be involved in the political process. And I cite, you know, I start off in my chapter on evangelicals talking about William Wilberforce, mm-hmm. and I'm sure everybody in your audience is familiar with him. I think that's a heroic person uh, who certainly had a religious conversion, and that impacted uh, his public policy decisions and, and how he dedicated his life to making the world better. So I, I think that's admirable, but I think there's also a problem when you make politics your savior and when you, uh, when you believe you become uber-political. I actually think that's aping the left. I think that it is the left who see this world as the end-all and be-all, and they believe that we can have a, a utopia on Earth, 
and that 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 is the primary focus because there's nothing else. You you got to make this, this is uh, you only live once. The, yeah. the whole YOLO thing, as yeah. they would put it. So I think it's all about perspective. I think it's about keeping the the important thing is to keep the important thing the important thing or, or whatever that that Haley Barberism is. The main yeah. thing, I guess, is how he puts it. I mean, to me, I think that the 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 refreshing trend is that you have evangelicals who are still involved in politics, but I just think put it, putting it in a healthier perspective and not assuming that our salvation, that everything depends on politics, because frankly, it doesn't. I agree. I agree. What One of the interesting things that Mike Huckabee said recently was uh, talking about some Christian groups who, um, I forget uh, how he put it, but he said essentially they don't want to win because then they would become irrelevant. And I think there are some Christian groups or movements for whom that is true, definitely true, who would really rather lose because uh, it enables them to pick up on that victim status and identity politics that you were talking about in order to get the the niche group riled up and active rather Absolutely. than to actually and build I think, collaborative you know, the majorities. The book called Too Dumb to Fail, and part of it harkens to um, the Too Big to Fail story, right? Yeah where you had these financial institutions that had perverse incentives. Uh, they could say or do crazy uh, or controversial things, take risks, and they would be bailed out by we the people. And I draw a parallel to what's happening in politics with our politicians and our pundits. We have these perverse incentives to say or do provocative things that personally help us. They, they help you know get us book deals and buzz and attention and drudge lengths. But collectively, they hurt the conservative cause and the Republican Party. Um, and I think that you have a similar dynamic happening sometimes with organizations where, frankly, it's in their – they do better if liberals win. Hmm. You know, they, they actually maybe can, can raise more money, uh, build their lists, whatever they want to do. They actually have this weird, perverse incentive. Would you say that that the trends you're talking about in your book, because you're, you're focused mostly on conservatism and, and on the Republican Party, would they apply also from the other end to the Democratic Party and the left, or have they been somewhat immune to these pressures? No, I think that – so mo- a, lot of what, a lot of what the book is about are, are cultural and technological trends that are philosophically neutral. And I mean, like the celebritization of politics is an example that affects everybody, no matter what side of the spectrum you're on. The sort of the cultural degradation, the fact that politicians can get away with saying things that are vulgar that in the in the past would have hurt them. Screaming um, profanities at a rally. Exactly. That works on both sides of the aisle. I do argue, though, that Republicans have been disproportionately hurt by these trends for a variety of reasons, but primarily because that these trends are manifesting at a time when Republicans do not have the bully pulpit, they cannot impose discipline and order, and they are in the wilderness and um, searching, sort of going through an identity crisis. So although these trends affect everybody, I think they're disproportionately harming the conservatives at this time. Well, thanks, Matt Lewis, for being with us. The book is called Too Dumb to Fail, and I think it will, it's a fascinating read. I think it will help you, even if you have absolutely nothing to do with politics, even if you're not a Republican, you're not a conservative, it'll it'll help you to understand the lay of the land 
uh, as to what's happening in our culture. Thanks, Matt, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.